The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Welcome to another episode of Create Your Shot. I am Tyler Laurie, and for the first time in a long time, I am not joined by my co-host, Chris Smalls Angelos. Uh, Smalls is in Vegas for what he told me was a work conference, but who knows? So you guys tweet at him, see if he's all right, see if he's actually doing work, see if he's at the tables. But uh, he is on this interview. He just could not join me for the intro, so I am doing a very short intro. This week on Create Your Shot, we have Matt Healing, the head coach of the Pace University Setters. Matt's in his fourth season, coming off a 16-14 and 14 season in the NE10. A very good interview, a guy that we uh, met at the Final Four and who I think has a hilarious dry sense of humor, but also has one of the funnier stories that we've ever had on the show of getting into coaching. Essentially got out of college, went to Monmouth, worked in sales in New York City, and then had a, a pretty hilarious life event happen. That was a wake-up call and went in the next day and quit his job. I will not spoil the story for you guys, but very, very good story. And and for Smalls and I, who are very big proponents of, you know, quit your job and do what you love, I thought Matt was a perfect guest for us. Uh, also, just a, a pretty funny story of, uh, you know, how to turn around a program and, and stick into what you know and, and being confident in what you do. So Matt Healing, head coach at Pace University. If you uh, like what you hear, as always, please do leave us a rating, give us five stars, subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. If you write us a review, it uh, drives us up the rankings, helps us get more ad revenue, helps us do some more shows, do some live stuff. Uh, we are very reachable. We are at Create Your Shot on Twitter, at Create Your Shot Pod on Instagram, Create Your Shot on Facebook, and Create Your Shot at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out. Let us know what you think. Let us know guests you'd like, dislike, anybody you want to recommend for the show. If you want to be on the show, Shoot us an email. Uh, our selection committee is just myself and small, so it's pretty easy to get by. But uh, thanks, as always, to everybody who listens, and enjoy this episode of Create Your Shot with Matt Healing from Pace University. We are pleased to be joined by Matt Healing, the head coach of Pace University. Matt, we were talking, it's Monday night, uh, and we appreciate you joining us. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you guys very much for having me on the program. I'm honored. Oh, yeah. You, you definitely should be. We're two of the most serious guys in college hoops. But uh, again, <laughs> you just finished your fourth season at Pace. You guys finished 16 and 14 this year, and that's actually the first time since 2006, 2007 that Pace has been over 500 had some chances to you've had some time to sit and think about it and reflect on it how do you really feel about this season yeah I think this was a really good step forward for our program like you said 16 wins was the most we've had in over a decade our first playoff win in over a decade as well so a lot of a lot of very good uh, tangible progress on the court really really the year as a whole was was just a tremendous year for us we we did a great job in the classroom. The guys killed it, 3.2 team GPA throughout the year, uh, which is really just a testament to the guys, the student athletes that we have in our program and at Pace in general. Um, 
had a great year fundraising, started off with a excellent exhibition game. We played at the University of Rhode Island in a very competitive exhibition game back in October. Um, we had a tip-off dinner record number for our tip-off dinner in November. We actually had Coach Hurley, Bob Hurley, speak at our dinner. We do a different keynote speaker every year. And uh, he was joking before the year started. He said the last couple, last couple dinners he's spoken at, each of those teams went on to have really good seasons. So he said he felt really good about us this year, and it was nice to see that he's, I think, three for three, three consecutive years he's spoken at a Division II uh, dinner, and each of the teams has had a, a very successful season. So anybody looking for a keynote speaker next year, he would be the guy to go to. But it was just the uh, – no, incredible yeah, no. plug. Incredible plug. <laughs> Bob really needs he needs plugs on this podcast. As he does. As he'll get big. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I hope he appreciates it. But he did a great job. And uh, no, it was a it was a really good season, top to bottom. So uh, still room for us to improve, of course. Maybe get to that you know that great level next year with a lot of the team coming back. But this was a very good step forward for us. Yeah, coach, and we. We kind of you you jumped into it, and Tyler mentioned it. You know, the first time you guys are over five hundred since oh six oh seven, and this is only your that was only your fourth season as the head coach. Um, you know, entering this job and going through the process in your first three years, you know, what kind of adversity and what did you really have to change culturally with the program to get it to where it is, and hopefully to where it's going? Which you know, in my estimations just being a part of the division landscape and seeing the NE10, I can only see you guys going to 20 wins and uh, setting those type of expectations that end with championships and NCA bursts. We can only hope it goes as well as you're, uh, you're talking about. And as you know, the, you guys know the division two landscape is, is difficult. It's challenging. There's so many good teams and uh, being in a conference like the Northeast 10, it's, it's challenging every night. So many good teams. Um, I took over a program in 2015 that was that was coming off a season of one in 19 in the NE10, so it was an uphill battle from a competitive on-court standpoint. Um, but in addition to that, you know, the trans the, the school was going through a little bit of a transformation at that time as well. Uh, there was a lot of construction on campus, building new dorms, building a new athletic field house with uh, a weight room in it. They were renovating our student center. So yeah, in 2015, it was, it was a hard sell at times, you know, we had to sell prospective recruits on, you know, this is what our program is going to, to look like on the basketball court. But at the same time, this is what pace is going to look like a few years from now. And uh, fast forward, just a few years later, we're able to sell, you know, we, we had 16 wins, we had a playoff berth, we won around in the postseason. And at the same time, our, our campus has been pretty much revitalized. Two brand new state-of-the-art dorms, uh, the brand new student center and athletic field house, like I said. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's night and day from 2015 to 2019 in a lot of good ways. And uh, just like you said, it can only, can only help us move forward in the right direction. What have you really learned as a, you know, this being your first go around as a college head coach, what have you felt like? you've most improved on personally, professionally from year one to now entering year five? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I definitely think there's a learning curve, you know, I mean, 20, 2015 was, uh, was quite a whirlwind for me within, within a few weeks of getting the head coaching job at pace. Like you said, my first head coaching job, I also became 
a first time parent, you know, and, and at that same time, it's, you know, there's a lot of similarities to, to both, you know, and, and a lot of kind of learning on the fly. Everybody talks about, uh, you know, I think I'm ready to be a head coach or, you know, uh, I'm ready to have kids. My wife and I are ready to have kids and, and people say these things, but you're never really ready until you actually get there. And it's almost become like one of my pet peeves in coaching. Like, Oh, he's ready to be a head coach. And I think the reality is no one's ready to be a head coach. Just like the reality is nobody's really ready to be a parent until you have a kid screaming in the middle of the night and you can actually fully understand, you know, uh, where you're at. So for me, yeah, there's, there's a learning curve. Um, I think in the beginning, I, I really wanted to prove to everybody that I belong. So just the ability to, to let go a little bit and not squeeze everything in the program so tight that it wasn't always going to be perfect. You had to fail. You had to make mistakes. It was only, only natural. And I felt like, you know, I felt like that was, that was something that, that I really improved on as, as the years have gone by. And I think our program at the same time has improved. Matt, you came to Pace at, after spending time as the Dobo at NJIT and had been an assistant uh, at uh, the small college level for a couple of years prior to that. When this Pace job came open, was it a job that you had circled prior to thinking that you would definitely have a chance to get in the mix as a head coach? So before I got the head coaching job, I was, I was at Pace as an assistant for a couple of years under Pat Kennedy and uh, was, very, was very fortunate to and thankful to be promoted by athletic director Mark Brown and associate AD Mike Wynn. Um, and prior to that, yeah, I mean, I was at NJIT. I was, I was in Division Three at a couple different institutions. And you mentioned the NJIT stuff. Um, I really thought that my time as the director of basketball operations there was, was really what set me up to, to really take my coaching game to the next level for the most part. And the Dobo position to me is a unique one. And probably if you spoke to five or 10 guys that had that Dobo position that you'd, you'd probably get five or 10 different uh, experiences relayed to you in, in a variety of ways. Uh, but for me, my experience at NJIT was tremendous. I was working at a division three school, Vassar college in New York. When, when I met Jim Engels, who was then the head coach at NJIT. Now he's the head coach at Columbia. We, uh, we met, we talked about the position. I was, I was really blown away by Jim and his intelligence, his coaching story and everything, you know, really his entire vision of what NJIT basketball was going to be at the time. And they were, they were really starting to ascend after, after some tough years there. But, um, you know, some, some Dobo experiences don't allow you to get on the court uh, some Dobo experiences don't allow you to recruit, but one of the biggest selling points to me from Jim was that they were going to be down an assistant all summer. So in addition to being the ops guy, and I would eventually settle into that role, he really was hiring me to be his assistant coach during the recruiting period and throughout the summer before they filled that spot. So for me, yeah, I mean, I got to travel to Las Vegas. I got to fly to Myrtle Beach. I got to recruit nationally. I was scheduling and coordinating recruiting for the entire program. and pointing each coach in the right direction and talking to AAU guys and all of that stuff. And at the same time, working our guys out in the summer, the guys that were on campus. So I really had the full experience uh, of being an assistant coach while I was in that position. And uh, it's a tremendous experience. I mean, I'm just very thankful for Jim to, to give a hungry D3 coach that opportunity. And, and it worked out really well for us. We won 
uh, the Great West Championship that year. I don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Great West Conference anymore. <laughs> is that like, is that like a fable, or do people still remember that? I don't, I don't think they do. Why don't, let us know about it because this was like before, right? Because then NJIT was out of a conference before they joined the Atlantic Sun, right? Like it was like a big kind of a deal for where they were going to land on their feet in Division One, right? Yeah, well, now the rules have changed, right? When, you, when you're going to gain Division One membership, they require that you go into a conference. But back then, they didn't require that. So you had five, six, seven teams that were advancing to Division One throughout the United States that didn't have a conference. So they were all just kind of you know, floating in limbo. So these six teams or so uh, just formed their own conference, the Great West Conference. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty wild. It was, uh, you know, six or seven teams spread throughout the entire United States that was in one division one conference randomly. And, uh, you know, it was like an NBA schedule. So our league at the time was Houston Baptist, uh, Chicago state, uh, North Dakota, Utah Valley, Texas, Pan American. So this was, that was our conference. Those were our league games. And, uh, it was pretty wild, but (laughs) no, we, we had a, we had a really good year, uh, won the championship, regular season championship in the Great West. Jim was Great West Coach of the Year, and I know the success that we had there certainly uh, helped propel them into the Atlantic Sun. That had to be a pretty fun year to be the guy that handled all the travel, right? I mean, in terms of like, hey, this is our tiny budget. We need to figure out how to make this happen. Matt, take care of this for us. Like, You had to at least gain some pretty invaluable experience there, I would guess. Oh yeah, no, it was it was horrifying, absolutely. Yeah, we had to try and figure out how to get you know a party of twenty five people and coaches and SIDs and trainers, you know, from uh, Texas to Utah to Chicago, back home, play two games, fly back out to North Dakota. Yeah, it was in the winter. We had a travel agent uh, who did a great job working hand in hand with me on a lot of this stuff, but uh, you know, it was it was always very tricky for sure, and. Uh, but it, no, like you said, it was a great experience. You know, just I, I felt like uh, some people it takes years to to go through something like that, and we had it kind of condensed into a small amount of time. But uh, but a lot of great, a lot of great experiences, and just a tremendous group of guys. I actually want to talk about your starting coaching because just in terms of the way it, it kind of reads on your bio is that you graduated from Monmouth in 2004, and then you started coaching high school in 2007. Did you know when you graduated from college that you were ultimately going to want to make coaching your full-time job or, or kind of did it hit you a little bit later on? Yeah, there's uh, there's definitely a story here. So I graduated from Morris Catholic High School in Denville, New Jersey in uh, in 2000. I was, you know, an average uh, average high school basketball player that probably had an over overly inflated sense of myself. Um, wound up going to Monmouth University, which was kind of, for me, it was sort of predetermined by my family, which was, which was interesting. Uh, I grew up in, in Morris County, New Jersey, but our family had a summer house in Long Branch right down the street from Monmouth. So they kind of had already told me as I was going through high school, like, just, just so you know, so that we can afford a college, you're going to go to Monmouth, you're going to stay in this house, and we're not going to have to pay for room and board. And, uh, you know, again, Monmouth is a, is a tremendous school. So it definitely wasn't a bad thing, but I also thought to myself, like, oh, this is perfect because, you know, they're not Duke or Syracuse, and I scored nine points a game in high school basketball. So, yeah, I'm sure I can walk on to Monmouth and play a little bit. So uh, it took me about two days of playing pickup with their guys to realize how good they were and that that wasn't going to happen. But um, 
yeah, I really, you know, I didn't get the coaching itch uh, really until until close to graduation from college. And when I was back in high school, it was all I talked about. Um, I used to record college basketball games, basically every Big East game that was on TV in the 1990s, I would record and rewatch and uh, study the plays. And I was just really obsessed with all those coaches and their press game conferences. And I'm sure you guys grew up watching a lot of the same stuff and hearing great stories about the old Big East, of course. Um, but I found myself as college was ending, starting to go through some of the same stuff again, watching college basketball nonstop, recording the games, but really just didn't have the fortitude to make that kind of, you know, my profession. Uh, you're graduating college and I had some, some decent uh, offers out of college to work in, in Manhattan and, and all your friends are making money, getting jobs out of college. So that kind of seemed like the thing to do. And that's what I did for a couple of years. I actually did marketing and sales for Clear Channel Radio in New York City. I worked for, for uh, Z100 radio station uh, in New York City. Sure. Elvis Duran. The Elvis Duran oh, yeah. show. Yeah, we, we all know Absolutely. about it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did that. I worked in New York City for the radio station doing marketing and sales. Was doing really well. Year or two out of college. Um, and then, and then, you know, I was really, I mean, I was doing well in terms of making some money out of college, but really miserable, uh, wanted to do something I was passionate about trying to figure out how I was going to tell my parents, I didn't want to do this anymore. And I wanted to be a college basketball coach. And again, just didn't really have the fortitude to do it. And then something like pretty, pretty amazing happened to me and kind of a wild story. Um, so I'm, I'm going through all of this, trying to figure out, you know, how do I muster up the strength to make this switch into into coaching basketball so I get home from work one day I got a I have an apartment in, in Secaucus New Jersey with a couple of my buddies who also work in New York City and a buddy of mine hands me a letter and the letter is addressed to me He's like hey you got this letter in the mail today it's kind of kind of strange you know and I, I look at it it's addressed to me but it's got uh, my return address and my handwriting from when I was younger so sure enough, this turns out to be, and I don't know if you guys did anything like this, and I don't even know how this actually feasibly happened, but it really happened. It was a letter that I guess I wrote when I was a freshman in high school that your teacher takes from you. You're 14 years old. He said, I'm going to find you 10 years from now, and I'm going to make sure you get this letter. And it's a letter that you write to yourself 10 years in the future, you know, about what you're going to be doing. And sure enough, within the first few sentences of this letter, there's the, the line in there. I know that I'm going to be a college basketball coach one day. I don't know what team you'll be coaching, but I'm sure you'll be getting ready for a game. So to me, that was, you know, the biggest wow. sign I could wow. ever have and, and empowered me to, to make the change. I actually uh, walked into my office the next day in New York City and uh, told, my, told my boss uh, I was making the change. And obviously he had a really, really hearty laugh at me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's just, what are you talking about? What do you want? Ten thousand more dollars? You got it. Come on now. What are you talking about? And uh, yeah, so and, and having to tell my parents, I was like, no, I, I'm doing this. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to clinics, and I'm gonna, you know, do everything I can. So that kind of started the, the process. I probably emailed every coach uh, on the Eastern Seaboard in 2006 and 2007, introducing myself, which may or may not have been the right way to go about it, but, you know, got a few, uh, got a, 
got a few opportunities from there and and the rest is kind of history. I, I just want people to know that I, I did not know that story before I asked the question. I just saw a gap and I was like, there might be a story here. And I, I was, and Smalls can tell you, cause we do this over zoom. I was sitting on the edge of my seat, like chin on my palm. Like, where is this going? I just think that's so cool. Like I'm a big, like, do what makes you happy type of guy. And I can just imagine you walking into your office, like taking a deep breath and being like, no, I have to do this or I'll never know what I was really meant to do. And I, I think that's awesome. You know, I think that's, and you clearly kind of, you know, you paid your dues after the fact that Centenary, Vassar, Pace, NJIT. So you can't feel bad about it, right? It's just, what did your parents say when you said like, hey, I'm going to do this? Like they were just like, all right, good luck. <laughs> I think there was some strong curse words in there and, uh, you know, that whole, like, well, Joey makes $60,000. You're going to just make nothing. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to make nothing. I'm gonna, well, and I think I said to them, mom, uh, Centenary is willing to pay me $2,000. <laughs> and they're like, what? And your mom has no idea that $2,000 is your first job. Like that's basically $50,000 in coaching when you break in. It's like two grand. I can afford to yeah. go to Wawa in the morning and get coaching money. So different. Like there should oh be a different God. currency for coaches, especially at the young. Cause it's like, you watch all your friends and I, I can totally sympathize with this. I think Tyler can too. You watch all your friends or people, you know, they're going out making all this money going out on the weekends and you're like, shit, I don't know how I'm going to make this money to go out, but I'm going to, I'm going to get together five bucks and go buy some beers. But it is, that story is awesome, but good on your teacher. Your teacher is the yeah. most impressive person. Here. 100%. Also, I have no idea how he found me. You know, I was, I was not living in the same area. Um, and, and I've, I've asked around, I, you know, throughout the years, I asked around in my graduating class from that year of high school, cause he was only at the school for a couple of years and then, you know, kind of lost touch of where, where he went. So nobody has really seen or heard from him, but only, only a few people in that class actually got their letter. So I don't, I don't know how he got mine or had mine still and, and tracked me down, but uh, and I haven't spoken to him since, but if Mr. Tripp is listening, a uh, big shout out to Mr. Tripp. I think we got to go find Mr. Tripp. We got to do it. We got a little do a podcast investigation. Let me, let me chime in real quick on what Small said about like when you're a young coach and all your friends are making money and you only have a couple dollars in your pocket. The real veteran move is to just make sure you have enough money to buy the first round of drinks so that everyone else is reciprocating the rest of the night. And as guys get a little bit longer and longer into the night, then they just keep buying you beers because they're like, oh, yeah, he bought before because they vividly remember you buying the first round. So just make oh, sure it's you and your group of four friends, like buy the first four Bud Lights and you won't have to pay for a drink the rest of the night. That was what I did for I mean, oh, I, yeah. I still do it sometimes. I'm 30. I still do it sometimes. Just to, just to be honest. Yeah, just throw everybody for a loop right off the bat. Hundred percent. It's all about looking the part. That's that's a big big thing oh, yeah. in this industry. Big looking the part. Yeah. Hey, co- hey, coach. This uh, I want to get back to hoops a little bit um, and talk about building the staff, uh, especially as a as a new head coach, a first time head coach. For you, what were you looking in terms of building a staff and you know hiring an assistant? I know really you get one full time assistant, maybe a couple part time or volunteers at the Division Two level at pace. What went into that process for you and how'd you go about it? Like you said, it's, you know, division two staffs are, are much different than division one staffs. Uh, there you're going to have three, four, five assistant coaches and support staff members. So division two is not that dissimilar from division three in terms of the way staffs are built. But yeah, I'd say most division two staffs have one full-time assistant. That's what we have at pace. And uh, you know, for me, it was finding uh, guys that were loyal, guys that were hardworking, 
Um, I felt like some of the rest I could fill in the blanks, but I wanted people that I could trust, people that would get after it. Um, and I've been fortunate to have great assistant coaches throughout the years here at Pace. Um, Ed Ryan's been on my staff since since I got the job, and uh, you know he's he's done a great job and really instrumental in in helping me turn the program around and kind of embodies everything that we've just talked about. But but yeah, I mean, been very lucky, and I, I think for me it was it was really that you know I could I could show somebody at times exactly what I wanted to to look for when we were on the road, um, or teach somebody about some X's and O's that that I might be looking for, but really I wanted somebody that I could trust, somebody that would get after it, somebody that knew the division two landscape in some capacity. And, and like I said, I've been lucky enough to have some pretty good staffs. Yeah, no, no doubt. Ed Ryan was, uh, you know, I know he was at Caldwell and he had, I believe Caldwell. Yeah. That's where we crossed paths. And he had, you know, one of those reputations, first off a good guy, like a guy you can go up and talk to on the trail, but also a guy who worked, worked his ass off and still does. So I always thought, I remember that hire happening. And, you know, when you got the job, I thought that was a really good decision. Uh, in terms of, you know, building up the program, just getting back to that, how did you set expectations, you know, from year one, going into that job, setting expectations and goals for your team? And how are those expectations kind of evolving year to year? And now as you set forth uh, to your next four? But like every coach does, uh, setting goals is extremely important. Um, I think there's probably two schools of thought on it. Number one, you could come in and set the most lofty expectation you could have. And, you know, our goal is to win a national championship and that's what we're going to be. And everything else is, is not good enough. And, um, but to me, like those are givens, right? Like, obviously you want to win the national championship and obviously you want to win the Northeast 10 conference championship for us. Um, I thought for me, especially taking over a program that hadn't seen a lot of success recently, it was more important to set, you know, tough uh, goals, but, but tangible ones as well. So, um, yeah, for us, step one was to get back to the, to the postseason, which we, which we achieved this year. And I know that our, our group is looking forward to and, and excited to increase those expectations to, uh, to something even higher next year. You know, that's, uh, that's all part of the process though. Part of the step for us. Step one was getting back. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to, I was interrupting there, but is there a different type of juice or, you know, enthusiasm throughout the program and with your guys going into this next year? Because I, I think you kind of see that you can do it now, 16 and 14 winning a playoff game. Is there that extra juice, that, that extra feeling around the program? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, if you really paid attention to what we were doing the year prior, you would see that we were close. You know, we, we won 16 games this past year. We had won eight the year before, but even the year that we won eight, we lost, I think it was 10 games by single digits and we were starting three freshmen. So, you know, we've started, we've started a freshman backcourt who was the sophomores this, this past year, but they've started every game for us the last couple of years, Brandon Jacobs and Austin Gilbertson. And again, those guys came in winning eight games, but losing a ton of close games this past year, putting in, you know, blood, sweat, tears, the whole thing and seeing that improve to, to 16 wins. Uh, yeah. Just, just the taste of that and seeing the payoff of the work they're putting in is, is really, it's catapulted us to a really good postseason. 
And, uh, you know, I, we can't work with our guys in the summer, but I know they're working from what I hear. And, and uh, yeah, that buzz is there. And if they come in with that same focus and hunger in September that they came in with this past September, I have no doubt that, that we'll be ready to take that next step. Well, one of the things you said early was that you kind of had to pitch like what pace was going to be. How has your recruiting philosophy changed over the last couple of years, especially as you have seen more success? Well, you guys know how competitive D2 is and the Northeast 10 Conference. It's, it's probably one of the best Division II conferences in the country from top to bottom. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. I mean, it's, the players are so talented. I, and I don't think people, you know, I think people on a regional level definitely know, but I don't, I don't think people know as, like how good, really, really good D2 programs are. I mean, just so talented. Yeah, it's a grind every night, you know, these transfers. And we're not a huge, you know, transfer market type school. You know, we've taken a couple throughout the last few years, but mostly we've taken incoming freshmen. But even the transfers that come in, whether it's Pace or another school in our league, you're constantly hearing from them. Like, oh, I had no idea how good this, this level was. So, yeah, everybody that we're recruiting probably has a level of recruitment from Division One, or maybe even offers from Division One, or maybe even high academic D3. So, um, yeah, there, there's that sort of recruitment across the board. Uh, for me, it's just, you know, everybody we're recruiting is talented and athletic. It's just trying to dig a little bit deeper than that as best we can. It's never going to be perfect or an exact science, but trying to see what makes guys tick and, and trying to see if guys love basketball and are mentally tough and are they coachable? Do they, you know, do they feel strongly about their teammate success just as much as their own? So just all of those little things, I think that's kind of the philosophy that we try and have as, as best we can. We try and get away from that, you know, get talent at all costs sort of sort of mold and, and try and find guys that fit our program of hardworking kids that put the team and family first. And, and uh, I think that's what we've been doing. You know, we, uh, the way our team is set up too, we divide all the guys on our team into two positions, guards and forwards. Sounds simple enough. You know, we, we play with three guards and two forwards, but the guards and the forwards have very different roles within our offense. So. Um, I think that we've really built ourselves on being a physical team. And with that kind of requires us to have a very strong front line that so we pretty much bring in, try and bring in one impactful front court player every year. Um, and then in addition to that, the guards and forwards, we, we do have some subcategories just really as coaches, less for the players, more for coaches in the recruiting standpoint, where within the guards, we kind of subcategory point guards and we subcategory our, uh, in our, within our forwards. Uh, our bigs or our five men, just so that with the guards, we always have somebody on the court that we feel comfortable running our offense. And for the forwards, that we feel comfortable with somebody always being able to defend the biggest person on the other team. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Last question from me uh, before we go to Coach Speak. I want to get into your work-life balance. You're married with two kids. You mentioned you were having, you know, you got the head coaching job and you were having, starting a family, essentially. Uh, as your career has advanced, how have you managed to maintain that work-life balance and, uh, you know, especially throughout your four years of pace? Yeah, uh, you know, the question might be, am I, main, you know, and, and do I have a work-life balance as opposed <laughs> to am I maintaining it? Um, no, it's, it's this, this to me might be, you know, the most difficult part of coaching and trying to, you know, evolve as a coach is one thing, but trying to be the best husband and, and parent you can be is, is another thing. And I, I think that this is something that's really hit home to me over the last few years. And I mentioned earlier, maybe, 
maybe, you know, squeezing the program too tight at times in my first couple of years, just wanting everything to be so perfect all the time, um, you know, to prove myself and our team and, and everything that we were doing. Um, you know, the same thing with, with home. I think I, I think it was Joe Gallo. I think I heard him on your podcast uh, some time ago talking about something similar. Like you get home, you practice all day, you're, you're busy, you've, you haven't been home for two straight nights because you've been recruiting and you had a game. And all of a sudden you get home, you're at the kitchen table and you look down and you find that you're, you're reading a Kevin Eastman article or a Doc Rivers video and you're like, what am I doing? You know, I have one hour to be with my family here before they all go to sleep or do different things. And yeah, I had to really pry myself away from, from doing that because of course, you know, I'm very lucky and thankful to have a great wife, Daniela, two wonderful children, Nicholas and Matthew, who are loving and supportive and, and, you know, are with me every step of the way in this, in this journey. So yeah, it's just, it's constant training, honestly, the work-life balance. I, I think that you have to just constantly be aware of it and be aware of being present in the moment and, uh, and kind of enjoying it, enjoying the home life, enjoying the family. I, I find that, I find that more than ever, I enjoy the, those hours, you know, before it used to be like, okay, I'm going to get home for two hours and let me check out this video, pop in this game. And it's a lot more of, you know, being present with, with the right people at the right time. I actually think that's really funny what you were saying about because it, it, it's so easy to just get lost on Twitter, you know, and you're just like, Oh, yeah. Evan Daniels tweets something and then you're all of a sudden you're down the rabbit hole on like a highlight video. And, and it's I the think black hole. Yeah. I, I think everybody does it. I really, I really feel super strongly about that. And I think like, that's one of the biggest things that coaches, they kind of hide behind like, Hey, I need to be on my phone, but like, yeah, you may need to call recruits. You may need to text recruits, checking on your guys, but you, you definitely don't need to like be on the overtime YouTube channel for, for three hours. You know, you, like, that doesn't have to happen. And I think like, that's really, it's really refreshing to hear that. Uh, last question for me, and then we'll go into it. Uh, you know, we've talked about the improvement over the last four years at, at Pace, and, and it's been a theme of kind of our show so far. How are you now, you know, setting short-term and long-term goals for the team and for yourself as a coach? You know, now that you've started to see a lot of hard work come to fruition, you know, how do you avoid, I guess, getting too high or too low, you know, over the next, even this summer, the, the start of next year, and then in the future at Pace? Well, for the team, I, you know, just kind of go back to what I said earlier, uh, trying to improve every day, every practice, um, try and set tough but tangible goals. I think even for our team now, you know, we, you know, we, we achieved a, a big goal that we had, but then, you know, that doesn't mean that we're going to ramp up the next goal again to win the national championship. There'll be a, a more cha- tangible, lofty goal that we're going to strive for, um, you know, so I think with the team, it's just continuing to take the right steps you don't want the steps to be too small because you want to make sure you're pushing your guys but you just don't want it to be you know you don't want it to be too far where uh you know you're setting yourself up for failure of course and just for myself yeah you know i feel like i really haven't had a a ton of you know goals you know i i didn't map out my career and where i want it to be at certain times I, i know when i first started in in marketing and sales you know i'm 23 years old and starting out in that business with a couple other guys and they were, they would talk frequently about that. They would say, Hey, I want by 30, I want to be a VP. And by 35, I want to be a senior VP. And by 40, I want to want to be something else. And I don't think in, in coaching uh, in, in the college basketball world, you really can plan out like that. There's too many twists and turns to say by 30, I want to be in D2 by 40. I want to be in D1 by 45. I want to be in the NBA. Just, you know, the, the path is, is too windy. 
you never know where you're going to wind up for me it's just it's just the goal is really just to continue to live the dream that I love doing and if that means being able to coach at pace for 10 or 20 more years then that's great if it means another opportunity that allows me to do that somewhere else then that's great too it's just yeah, to me now it's become about providing for my family first and foremost and continuing to do what I love. Matt, do you feel like, sorry, Smalls, to cut you off. Matt, do you feel like when you wrote that letter to yourself in high school, you were like, I'm going to be the head coach at, not Syracuse, Jim Bayon's never going to retire, but like, I'm going to be the head coach at, I don't know, Ohio State University. And, and your viewpoint of that has drastically changed. And you've, you realize like, hey, this is still my dream. It's just not on Big Monday. Is, is that something that you had to learn very early on, even like when you were still at Centenary or Vassar, or is that something you kind of always got right away that it was okay that you're fine where you're at? You love coaching, you love providing for your family. I, I'm trying to. There's a question in there somewhere. I, I hope you understand where I'm coming from. No, definitely. Yeah, of course. I think when you're you're 15 years old, 14 years old, and you write this letter to yourself, and you're watching all these games, and you don't know any better. Like it's probably like yeah, you think you can be. You know, you're watching uh, Jim Calhoun, and you're watching uh Bayheim and all these guys and and Patino and you're younger and you think yeah that's what that's you know the glitz and glamour of of the college basketball world and and uh yeah I, I don't think it was long into the business where I thought to myself like I love everything about this business like I've loved every stop that I've been at you know like I never thought that Centenary or Vassar was like a means to an end I never thought like okay let me just get here for like a month and then get out of here because I don't want to be in D3 like I really cherish, you know, my time at all of those schools. And I think that there's so many schools out there that have so much to offer at the D3 level, D2 level, D1 level. There's, there's great opportunities, a lot of places working for really good people and coaching basketball and, and having an impact on people's lives comes in so many forms. So yeah, that's, I think that's just part of, of the maturity of being in the business now for some time and, and uh, you know, fully understanding what it's all about. Um, kind of allows you just to have that clarity on it. Yeah, that's been a that's definitely been a theme of our podcast is like immerse yourself in what you're currently doing in terms of your job. Whether you can't really think about too much about the next steps, like like you mentioned, if I'm at Centenary, can't just be like, all right, I'm going to be here for a year and then get out. If you're doing that, you're probably not going to do your job the best way you can. I think you got to have fun with it. And you got to enjoy where you're at. Uh, that's the perfect attitude to take for young coaches and coaches alike. Uh, but moving this thing forward, we're going to take it into coach speak. So we're doing two quotes. Uh, the first one I'll take is from Kenny Atkinson, the Brooklyn Nets coach on his team's improvement. Kenny said, yeah, I hope people around the league, players around the league are seeing what's going on. Even when we won 20 games the first year, we stuck with the plan. There were times when we doubted and there were times where you're losing 13 out of 14 games, but we'd still stick with the plan and our style of play. I think just looking at you guys, this applies. I know we've been talking about so much, but this applies to you guys a lot at pace. And then you mentioned it, you get to that third year and you guys are so close, close losses and things like that from those struggles. But now you have that actual, that tangible ability to build on success. Uh, how do you kind of sell the turnaround to different recruits and in recruiting now? Well, just like you're saying, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that Kenny Atkinson, who's a tremendous coach, I think he hits the nail on the head for us. Just like you're saying, we, uh, 
you know, we talked a lot through the last couple of years about what we were becoming. And now we finally can sell, you know, you know, where we're currently at, which is nice. But I, you know, I kind of feel the same way, just like I said earlier, you know, like if you were, I know the perception about pace and our basketball program and not having much success over the last decade, you know, kind of feeds into itself. But if you really dug deeper uh, and looked at our team the last couple of years, I, you know, I don't know how you couldn't see that this year coming up, we were primed to kind of do what we did. You know, I, you know, we won 16 games in reality. We could have won 18 or 20, but you know, the last week sure. of the year, we, we kind of struggled. Uh, and I don't know if going into this, and I thought we were going to win 20 games. I just knew that we were going to be drastically improved because our, you know, we were there, you know, our, our guys were better players, better people, harder workers. Um, and it's hard to, it's hard for everybody on the outside to see that all the time. So, yeah, I mean, all we can do is preach what we're preaching, which is, which is the, the honest belief in, in what we're doing and our vision. And um, yeah, I, I think from a recruiting standpoint now, it's just finally a great feeling to be able to sell where we're at instead of where we're going to be. And, and obviously we're still talking about what the next steps are for us, but to do that at a point of, of some moderate success is, is certainly exciting. I actually ripped the second part of, of his quote for the second quote of coach speak because it, it talks a little bit about self-doubt and it says uh, player development was a huge part of it, but we stuck with the plan. It's great to see that kind of come to fruition and getting some results this year. We're like, man, okay, the plan is starting to take place. I know it's, we have a long way to go, but it's starting to move in the right direction. And, and I wanted to ask, we talk a lot about self-doubt on this show. In years one and two, Matt, how hard was it for you to be like, no, I know what I'm doing is the right thing? Or how flexible did you have to be to be like, all right, we have to make some tweaks to this. We have to make some tweaks to this to get to where you are now. Because I know sometimes guys panic and they're just like, I don't know how many years I'm going to get to try to make this work. And I wanted to know how you kind of dealt with some of those like, you know, darker thoughts creeping in maybe at the end of year one, the end of year two, even maybe the end of year three. Yeah, there's always a little bit of self-doubt, of course, but I, I really believed in our vision. Um, and again, fortunate to have an athletic director and administrators that, that had a belief in me and what we were doing. And, and maybe it was the perfect storm in terms of taking over a program that had gone through some really tough times that was willing to stick with a young coach that had a vision that, you know, that there really was no expectations for. You know, maybe if you're taking over a team coming off of, a championship, you know, that slow build doesn't, you know, doesn't work. But for us with, with where we were at, uh, in terms of pace, it, it, it did, it did work. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I had such a strong belief in what we were doing that even though as a coach, you're constantly reevaluating yourself and what we're doing and things have changed, you know, we've tweaked some stuff offensively. We've, we've tweaked, we've tweaked stuff defensively. Um, and those adjustments have been have been vital for us as we've improved. But really, you know, the main part of what we look for in our people and how we treat each other and our work ethic and how we love each other as a staff and as a as a team. I mean, none of that stuff has changed. You know, we still have the same beliefs. It's just been it's just been a little bit more adjustment um, from an X's and O standpoint. And again, I you know, I, there has been a luxury of of. Uh, you know, an administration that certainly has had a belief in what we were selling as well. Yeah, I think that's so underrated when you're looking at it from the outside in is the administration and athletic director and, you know, all the support. That's so critical with coaches because if you're only, and you see it every, you know, every day in college basketball, 
coaches get three years, they get four years now. And it's, it's not enough time if you've got to see your vision through and that pressure can really create problems when you're trying to build a program. So hats off to the administration, athletic directors who, uh, you know, support coaches like that. I'm taking it into the city review. We're getting a little more lighter, a little more fun. Pleasantville, New York coach. You're taking us there for a weekend. We've got to hit three restaurants, <laughs> two bars, and we're doing an oh, activity. Boy. A lot of pressure on you here. This is You're selling us on Pleasantville, and we're shooting up there for a weekend. <laughs> well, hopefully you guys have like a dump button. So just in case I say something inappropriate that you guys can easily just like dump out of the conversation somewhere. Or, or at least make sure that we're, uh, we're editing. But no, I'm in Pleasantville, New York, Westchester County, great area. Um, Obviously, 30 minutes north of New York City, tremendous area. A couple really good spots. So if you were coming up to Pleasantville, hang out for a little bit. Uh, probably our number one spot in town is Wooden Fire, a really high-level uh, pizzeria, brick, uh, wood oven pizzeria and bar, really good spot there. We go there as a staff sometimes. We'll take our recruits there. Uh, very high-level place. We've closed a lot of, a lot of uh, recruits there, which is, uh, you know, which is nice. And another really good place, uh, restaurant and bar, Italian restaurant, Tesoro di Italia. That's where we have our tip-off dinner every year. A hundred, a uh, hundred or so people every year at our tip-off dinner. The owner Peter's a really good dude. So if we're ever going there, he'll definitely hook us up. He makes a pretty mean martini. He's a good guy. Oh, there nice. we go. No, there no, go. hold on. We got to talk about the martini here. What are you a gin guy? Are you a vodka guy? Are you up? Are you? What's going on with your martini? Smalls and I have gone back and forth a little bit via text on what the right way to drink a martini is. But I, I'm curious, Coach, what, what, how are you doing it? Uh, I am a, uh, I'm a straight vodka guy. Boom, with, with, a little, with, a little, with a little olive juice. That's, that's one for, that's one for the, the Tyler side of the conversation. He's, so, the he's soft olive. like you and Lapis. That's fine. <laughs> that's okay. <Yeah. laughs> good spot all right one more uh one more restaurant right so we got two we got a pizza spot more an italian spot what else you got uh i mean yeah there's so many so many good restaurants in town o'connor's is another one that we go to do we don't we don't distinguish here from our restaurants and bars we try and consolidate so everything i'm giving you is a restaurant and bar combination yes i love it it sounds more like a bar to me O'Connor sounds like a place I can go and play some darts, maybe get in a couple fisticuffs, but <laughs> sounds good. Or so I've heard it's a good place. I don't know if I've ever been there. I've heard it's a good place. Yeah, O'Connor's, O'Connor's maybe has like got pub on the end of it, something like that, you know? Like yeah, I could see that I've, for sure. I've heard about it, yes. <laughs> All right, one activity, unless you've got another bar, it's not also a restaurant. No, it's, you know, I, there's so much you can do. I mean, we're right outside New York City, right outside White Plains. There's movies, there's restaurants, there's bars, there's anything you want. Bowling, you know, whatever. You guys are coming to town. You name what you want to do, and we're going to have it. All right. We're going to have a little comp- fun. Competition, competition day, then. Uh, I'd love to do these competition days. We'll just hit bowling. We'll hit a little mini golf. Maybe we'll hit the driving range. We'll play darts. Competition day. I really want to start a whole national competition day where just like guys go out and play competition against each other. So maybe we'll start. This could could replace the triathlon as an Olympic. It would be be better for for the two of us. That's for sure. 
All right, let's uh, let's go to 10 touches, 30-second rapid fire. I got the first five. Matt, who's the funniest person you've ever worked for or the funniest player you've ever coached? Oh, man. So many characters uh, in the coaching ranks and, and guys that, that I've coached. Uh, one guy that comes to mind quickly, I coached at Centenary. Um, he actually wound up being on staff with me at Pace for a year, and now he's at Hofstra, uh, Andrew Cobian. Uh, did a great job for me at pace. I mean, he, I don't know if you guys have coached anybody that just made you, that annoyed you, but also made you laugh all the time that it really almost undermined your authority to coach the team. But it was that sort of vibe going on. Great kid. He would literally just quick snapshot. I know you're trying to keep this to 30 seconds, but he would, uh, he would fly around the court during five on five practice and he would buzz like a bee just to annoy the coaches. And we weren't like, we weren't like the yellow jackets or the bees or the swarm or some like bee mascot. He would just literally buzz around the whole practice and you're trying to talk and he's buzzing under his breath. And, you're, and then, he, and then you don't know if you're hearing a buzz and if he's actually buzzing. So it was, it was hilarious, but infuriating at the same time. And I'm, I'm glad that he's actually somehow taken his infectious personality to the college ranks. But yeah, that was, uh, I, I go back to that all the time as being some of our funnest moments is, is those practices back then. He also has a uh, he has a podcast as well, a coaching podcast as well. That's pretty good. So we'll go shout out to it. Uh, can't remember the name of it right now. Coaches with coffee, <sighs> coffee with coaches. It's yeah. Some, yeah, it's yeah. it's you guys should check it out. That's Andrew Kobe. And he's uh, he actually asked a couple of people I know to be on it, which is good. So uh, what is your worst basketball travel experience? Oh, man, I feel like we've all been through some of these. Uh, especially with NJIT, we had some flight delays and cancellations and all sorts of stuff. But one humorous one I can think of comes from my time as an assistant at Pace. We were playing Lincoln University, and we were going to play Philly U uh, the next day, I believe. So we were busing. We were playing Lincoln on like a Saturday, and then we were going to play Philly U on a Sunday. But sure enough, wouldn't you know, as soon as the Lincoln game is over, some giant snowstorm hit. So we're trying to go not that far to, from Lincoln to Philly, or now Jefferson, and we're trying to get up this big, massive hill with this bus. And, you know, it's, uh, it's not going well. But somehow, some way, I think this was Coach Kennedy's idea at the time, um, we're sliding down a, a hill backwards, a bus full of people. Uh, somehow the idea was brought up for the entire bus to – to all get to the very back of the bus. So now you've got like 30 people in the back four rows of the bus smushed against each other, trying to stop a bus sliding down a hill backwards for traction, I guess. And somehow it worked. We actually regained traction in the back of the bus and we went up the rest of this hill, uh, you know, with basically the front tires, like semi, <laughs> semi in the air. And, uh, you know, for, for about five minutes, it was really uncomfortable just being smushed in the back of this bus. But it was uh, somehow we, we averted danger by uh, getting up there. Unbelievable ingenuity. Unbelievable ingenuity. Unbelievable. It really was unbelievable. Oh, that's good. Uh, Andrew, uh, I wanted to shout out the real name, the right name of his podcast. It is Coaches and Coffee, and you can find that on Apple Podcasts or iTunes as well. Really, really very good show. Uh, next one for me. You have kids, so the answer to this question always seems to be like Doc McStuffins or whatever kids show is popular. But if you get a chance to binge watch some TV, what what have you or you and your wife been watching lately? 
so many good shows on, right? I mean, wow. I was oh, yeah. actually a really, was a really big Game of Thrones fan, so I was uh, disappointed to see that go off the air and kind of go off the air, I guess, on a, on a sour note. But that was yeah. that was a big season. one for us. Were, were you uh, were you not you were down on the last season as well? We we're getting a lot of coaches telling us they were down on the season, like they they were so excited for it, it just didn't deliver for them. Yeah, a lot of a lot of character uh, decisions that were questionable, and a lot of people went out in ways that you wouldn't have expected. So yeah. It was such a good show, and uh, we were, you know, we were devoted from the beginning. So to see it go out like that was was a little disappointing. But you know, there's there's other good billions. We watched billions and True Detective. I was very into True Detective this year. So a lot of good stuff on TV. What's the uh, best game you've ever been a part of? Ah, uh, uh, so many games. Um, can I cheat and, and pick two and then tell yeah. you tell yeah. you why? So, yeah, definitely. definitely. Sure, show. It's not our show. We don't run in or anything. We don't ask the questions. You do. No, that's, that's not true at all. And I appreciate that you're going to humor me and let me cheat on this answer. But yes. So when I was at NJIT, we, we probably hadn't played a triple overtime game in, you know, like 20 years or something like that. So we wind up playing Chicago State at home. We beat them in just an unbelievable, awesome triple overtime game. Great win. Team's totally spent. Jim gives like three days off of practice after that. Everybody's so excited. Uh, really, just an awesome win. Sure enough, a week later, we fly down to play the University of New Orleans. And wouldn't you know it, we play another triple overtime game. Um, just probably the craziest game. You know, if I was going to pick one of the two games that was crazier, it was probably the second game here that we lost. Um, buzzer beaters all over the place. I think they hit a buzzer beater to beat us at the end of the third overtime or else the game was going to go into a fourth overtime. But it was almost like, you know, we were ready for it to be over at that point. Seven over six, seven overtimes in a week span was just, uh, just a little too much for us. But uh, yeah, an um, unbelievable week. I, I don't know if NJIT had played a triple overtime game since then either, but, and I, I've never been a part of one, you know, in, in all my other years of coaching. So the only two I've been a part of were, were in the same week, which was unbelievable. That's uh, that's but, awesome. What uh, can, who, I, la- give, can I give one other story from that New Orleans game? Yeah, go ahead. So, and, and hopefully I'm not uh, embarrassing uh, Jim here as I'm telling the story. But so we're in the second overtime. We're, you know, we get hosed on a call. Something's going on. We call a timeout. Everybody's going crazy. And, uh, you know, Jim, when we're done with the timeout, tosses the whiteboard behind our bench. And, you know, I'm, I'm the ops guy. I'm in charge of the whiteboard and fouls and timeouts and different stuff. So, you know, the timeout wraps up. The game's now back in play. It's in double overtime. And I'm behind the bench looking for this whiteboard. And in this arena, there's probably like 10 feet of space between the bench and the first row of the crowd. So he kind of like tossed it in an area where there was just like ground. But, of course, somehow, some way, this whiteboard winds up in the crowd. I'm pretty sure that, like, <laughs> some of these college kids got out of the crowd and grabbed our whiteboard. So That's now awesome. I see that they have the whiteboard. So I have to go into the crowd. It was the only whiteboard we have. I know he's going to kill me. We don't have the whiteboard in double overtime right now. So now I actually get into the crowd. Like, I'm, like, two rows into the crowd. I'm, I'm arguing with these college kids about the whiteboard. I'm like, guys, you, can I please have this whiteboard back? It's the only whiteboard we have. Uh, it's come on. Like I got to be in charge of all this stuff. Like you want 20 bucks. I'm trying to bribe these college kids to give us a whiteboard (laughs) back. It was a disaster. Jim's looking for me. I'm in the crowd. It was, it was crazy. And, uh, 
just an unbelievable moment. Finally, a security guard saw that I was in the crowd and came over and helped me get this whiteboard back. But, um, <laughs> you, you, That's an awesome story. You guys know very well that the job description of coaching sometimes takes forms that you can never expect. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because you can't you can't walk up to the huddle and and the coach holds his hand out. Jimmy Ingles has his hand out, and you're like, "Sorry, coach, the whiteboard's gone." Like that's just not going to fly. It crowds there. Then, then you're taking your your suit jacket off, you're turning your white shirt around, and you're letting him draw the plate up play up on your back. <laughs> right. Like that's, that's what's happening. That was that was going to be the next resort. Yeah, that was it. All right, what what would you do if you weren't coaching now? Not not when you first graduated. I don't yeah. know if you'd go back into marketing and sales. No, I, I think, you know, I think the realization back then was, yeah, I went into coaching, but it was to do something that I loved and was passionate about. And, uh, probably being in teaching or education in some way, I come from a family of, of educators. My mother, uh, is an educator. My grandfather was, my aunt was, my wife was a, a teacher as well. So yeah, I mean, the coaching part of, of the job right now is, is thrilling, but really the ability to make an impact in, in people's lives is, is huge. So yeah, if it wasn't a coach, it'd be teaching or educating in some way. What would you change about college basketball? Um, I, I think, yeah, you know, I, I think when I, you know, we talk about the old big East and different things, you know, I feel like to me, basketball, college basketball is like the purest game that you could find. You know, that's, you you hear oftentimes um, people are more attracted to college basketball than sometimes even, even the NBA because of how passionate people are and, and people play for the love of the game. And, and like I said, just the positivity and the purity of it. And I feel like recently, obviously for a variety of reasons, there's, there's a little bit of a black eye on, college basketball and, and, and maybe even coaching. I, I just think there's so many good people and, and good stories in college basketball, and there's just not enough light being shown on all of that sometimes. So I, I'd love to see the narrative change a little bit and course correct itself, hopefully in the upcoming years about, you know, just what a great sport college basketball is and, and all the great stuff that coaches are doing, players are doing. I think there's so many good things happening, and I, I wish we heard more about some of that stuff. That's a good answer. Pre-game routine. What is it? Yeah, it's probably, probably, probably pretty boring. You know, I just, once game day hits, it's kind of is what it is. There's, there's less anxiety. Just kind of listen to some music and uh, go over the game plan and scouting report again and maybe call or FaceTime my wife and kids and, and then get after it. So nothing, uh, nothing too special. Nothing too special. What's the best or uh, for you, the best coach to kind of steal ideas from? I think Jay Wright and everything that Villanova does is, is excellent. You know, try and steal a lot of their philosophies and, and what they teach their players. I think their model is, is everything that we're trying to do, you know, putting, you know, putting uh, an emphasis on the intangibles in the recruiting process as opposed to talent, finding people that want to put the success of the team ahead of individual success. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think everything that they're doing, and it's, it's so awesome that they've, they've gotten to the point of, of success that they've had because really Coach Wright had been doing that for years and there was that stigma that he couldn't break through. Um, and then now, again, just, you know, just like you talk about, like, you know, does self-doubt ever creep in or do you have the same conviction? It's pretty cool to see somebody that 
stuck with that conviction because he had been doing it the right way for so long and to break through. And now it's kind of like the model that everybody follows or is trying to follow, but it's, it's been there for a while. So we try and model everything, you know, as much as we can after a lot of their values. Two future podcast guests for us. Oh man. Anybody that has a good story to tell. Yeah. I, I think, uh, hopefully, hopefully, you know, if anybody's, you know, hopefully somebody's getting something out of the story I'm sharing and I'd love, you know, listening to all of your guys' podcasts. It's great to hear, um, all the stories that have been shared already. Um, and I think you guys do such a great job of, of sharing those stories and, um, certainly would love to hear your guys' story as well. I don't know if that's a, to get you guys on your own podcast and, uh, you know, maybe you already have, and I apologize if I, if I hadn't heard that, but, but yeah, I mean, anybody really with a good story. No. Oh boy. We, we, yeah. We, we haven't told, I, I think people know a little bit about us, but not, not a ton of like smalls and I being real serious about, we, we like to kind of shed light on, on other people who are out there doing great things, not people who talk into a microphone for, you know, one hour a week. So, but I appreciate you saying that. I think uh, at some point, if we don't have any interviews banked or something, we could do something like that. What, who's one guy you know of coach that has a really good story that you, you think would be good for us? I, you know, I think Jim Engels would be great. Obviously I'm, I'm kind of biased. He's kind of, one of my mentors and one of my guys and I'm close with him, but I know, you know, part of what sold me on, on coming to NJIT from Vassar at the time was hearing his story about being a uh, division one assistant coach for so long. And he was an assistant at Columbia and he was an assistant at uh, Wagner and a bunch of different places. And it took him a long time to break through. And, uh, you know, and obviously he's had success at NJIT and I know they're going to do really good things at Columbia. So, I do think he would be a great guest. Awesome. Uh, last segment from us, parting shots. Same two questions to every guest. I got the first one. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Just think back to the, you know, those, that crossroads moment in my, in my life. And once I was able to get through to, to my family in terms of wanting to pursue being a college basketball coach and giving up, you know, kind of uh, the set path that I already had, it was, uh, I think it was, I think it was my, uh, my cousin who had told me, you know, do what you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. And have really stuck to that now and, and kind of feel the same way. And all these years later, it's, you know, to me, it's, it's not work. It's just following my dream. I'm going to change this one up a little bit, but face to face with your 22 year old self, what are you telling that person? Face-to-face with my 22-year-old self. I just graduated um, college, about to hit the clear channel world. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe I'd like to tell him something, you know, smart, like, uh, you know, I'll bet a lot of money on the on the, uh, on the the Red Sox to win the World yes. Series. Yes, that, that is the key. Somebody else, who, who else told us that, Smalls? Dwayne Lee said invest in Apple, or invest in Instagram, I think, was what he, right. his advice to himself would have been. And I really appreciate that. Getting thinking outside the box. Early. Oh yeah, something something good like that. Buy a hundred thousand Bitcoin in two thousand eight. It would it would have cost you like right. legitimately twelve dollars, and now you'd be the richest person in in Westchester County, which is saying something. Maybe you wouldn't be. I don't know. That's a lot of money out there. <laughs> That's good. If, if you only knew, right? Oh man, Coach, we really appreciate it, man. It's been uh, very fun to talk to you and listen to some of your stories. And and again, like I said, congrats on all the success. I know. You know, we, we've harped on the turnaround and stuff, but just to the level of success you're having at a place that hasn't seen it for, you know, 
10 or so years. It's, it's awesome to see. He is uh, at Coach Healing on Twitter. Give him a follow. And then, uh, Matt, like I said, we'll be out and around this summer in July, and we hope we run into you uh, on the road. Love to catch up. Awesome, guys. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. I appreciate it. All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Matt. Bye.